Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the first New Books in Science Fiction episode of 2021. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Convergence Conjunction episode. I wish everyone a happy new year, or at least a year with more happiness packed in it than last year. It's starting off auspiciously enough with vaccines and what looks like the survival of our democracy. But in any event, we're not here today to dwell on the here and now when we can talk about the fantastic, specifically the new novel by Rebecca Roanhorse, Black Sun, which is full of ancient cultures, rival clans, political intrigue, huge mythical creatures, and a powerful dose of magic. Rebecca Roanhorse has written several critically acclaimed novels. She has won Nebula, Hugo, and Locus Awards and received the astounding award for Best New Writer when it was still called the Campbell Award. It's her second time on the show. She was on in 2018 to talk about Trail of Lightning. That was her first book and the first one in the Sixth World series. And I'm totally delighted to welcome her back. She's on with me now from her home in New Mexico. Welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Glad to be back. You announced on Twitter a few days ago that you're taking a break from the Twitterverse, so I really appreciate you making the time to come on the show. Oh, yes. Well, the Twitterverse is all-consuming, so (laughs) uh, I don't seem to be able to be on it in sort of discrete segments. I spend way too much time there. So I'm happy to set aside a little time to talk to you, Rob. That's a little uh, easier to try to wean myself off of Twitter to write a novel. Well, you're one of those people who really impresses me on Twitter because you always have something interesting and smart to say. And yet you're also a prolific novelist. So you somehow manage those two quite well. But, But maybe part of your skill is being able to take a break like you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the kind words. I don't know if that's always true, but yeah, you do kind of have to learn to manage it, (laughs) when to turn it off. Black Sun opens with a mother and her child. She treats him very tenderly, and it seems to be part of a ritual whose significance becomes clearer to the reader as the story unfolds. But what's clear by the end of the chapter is that this boy, whose name is Serapio, he is unique. And we know this without a doubt because his mother does this thing to him that I don't think any mother, well, I hope no mother has ever done to their child in reality. And I've never seen it in literature. Since it's the first scene of the book, I don't think it's giving away too much if you could talk a little bit about that scene and what the mother is doing to Serapio. Uh, Yeah, well, I'll try to keep it as spoiler-free as possible because I wanted that chapter to really have an impact. That the, the book is Black Sun is not in chronological order uh, per se. Um, I do take some liberties 
uh, with the timeline, but it is in story order, if that makes sense. So you can read it and follow the story. Um, like I'm not jumping around in the story itself. So this scene actually takes place when Strapio is a child, uh, as you mentioned, and most of the story takes place once he's an adult. So this is a bit of a, I guess, sort of a flashback before you realize it. Yeah, you know, the, what this chapter really is about for me uh, is sort of one of the central themes of the book. Uh, and that is sort of what parents, particularly mothers, do to their children. And the sort of burden of trauma and generational trauma specifically that gets carried on through the story, uh, particularly in, in Serapio's situation, because he comes from uh, people who have experienced the genocide that his mother survived, and she is now preparing him to go back uh, and sort of wreak vengeance on the people who were responsible for the deaths of, of so many of, of their people and their culture. Does that answer the question? That got really deep really fast, but I think the book, you know, sort of throws you into deep water pretty quickly. It lets you swim to shore for a while uh, and have some fun, but uh it definitely it definitely kicks you off the deep end. <laughs> yeah, for sure. People need to read it for themselves, but it, it's kind of shocking and compelling. And I was like, whoa, I have to keep reading this book, even though I was very disturbed. So it had both there. You're like, this is really disturbing, but I want to keep reading, <laughs> as opposed yeah. to putting it down like it wasn't that kind <laughs> of disturbing. Well, I wonder if what you've just mentioned about historical trauma and what parents do to children has to do with something else I noticed in in the book, which is that most of the main characters in some way feel out of place or not at home. Two people who I would cite as prime examples of that, although I think there are a number in the book, are Naranpa, who is the new sun priest, which is an incredibly important and powerful position in this world, particularly in the city of Tova, she feels out of place because I guess one way to put it is she comes from the wrong side of the tracks. She isn't from the Sky Maid clans, which are traditionally the governing clans. She comes from the, I suppose you could call it the lower classes, uh, the, from the dry earth, lower down, literally physically lower down. And in fact, her brother at one point points out to her and says, you know, you belong here in dry earth. This is the world you were born into and you can't escape it. So there's this sense... She's home in neither place. And then there's Serapio, who we were just talking about, who is raised in another part of the world, but doesn't feel like he's part of that part of the world. That's where his father is from. And he's destined to go back to where his mother is from, which is, in fact, back to Tova. And he has this destiny to fulfill. And yet he also has this feeling of, I'm going to fulfill this destiny for people, the Carrion Crow clan, who this is a quote, a people he would never know and who would never know him. It's, it's quite fascinating that people feel this, this strong connection and yet this ambivalence about the connection they have to places that are supposedly their home or their place of ancestry or, or their destiny. Everyone feels a little unsettled. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that is a big central sort of uh, thing that all the primary point of view characters have in common. So in the book, there are four main uh, point of view characters. Serapio and Narampa are two of them, and they are really political opposites. Uh, they are actually on a collision course, right, uh, throughout the book. 
where one has to sort of go down for the other to survive and vice versa. So you see their stories really start to come together uh, at the end. But what they do have in common is, is what you said, that they are they are both sort of out of place. They are outsiders to their cultures in one way or another. You know, I like to talk about Narampa. I think you're right. She is from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, so to speak, in this very um, highly uh, hierarchical world uh, of Tova. She has risen somehow to sun priest, and she's not sure she belongs there. Uh, the other priests are pretty sure she doesn't belong there. Uh, and, you know, there's all the sort of scheming and uh, intrigue and, and backstabbing that you would expect uh, when put in that situation. But I always like to refer to her as a woman who loves an institution that does not love her back. I think, you know, for her being sky made, becoming, you know, rising to this sort of high, you know, the the, the top of the, the mountain, uh, politically, so to speak, is like her dream. You know, this is where she wants to be. And, and then she tries to institute reforms to make this a better place for everyone. Uh, but she still has a pretty tight grip on uh, being at the top <laughs> and what that means to her and how important that is to her. So I think she has, you know, some real contradictions in who she is. And I think that's very true uh, for people who sort of are, are welcomed into, you know, institutions where they have not traditionally been uh, welcomed. Uh, and then they have to try to struggle to survive and try to change it from within and, you know, how sort of all that politics works. Uh, whereas Serapio is very much has always been on the outside. Uh, as he said in that quote, he he is someone who, you know, feels drawn or, or feels like he has a purpose, a destiny, and his destiny is tied up with something pretty dark, you know, that he's doing on behalf of a people that, that don't even know he exists. And certainly he feels drawn to this, but not so much to the individual. You know, he has no connections there beyond his mother but to the larger story, the larger uh, concept of being part of a community and what that feels like and what your obligations are to that, even to the point of putting aside your own needs uh, to try to fulfill something that in the long run uh, may not be the best thing for you, uh, but you're sort, of, you're sort of set on that path by others, you know, and how do you break free of that if you can uh, and if you should? Like, I think those are the sort of questions I'm trying to raise uh, that I hope readers struggle with and think about. I think people often yearn for a sense of community and they get a picture of what it's supposed to be like in their heads, but it doesn't always prove to be what they expect. And I wonder if that's something that some of your characters experience, that Narampa thinks being with the Sky Made clans will be something other than what it turns out to be. And Serapio, too, really doesn't know what to expect, but he has this vision and comfort. He wants to be with the carrion crow because that's who he identifies with through his mother, even though he hasn't spent any time with them. Mm-hmm. Right. What draws you to characters like this? Why are you interested in, in telling the story of characters who are grappling with this feeling? Oh, gosh, you know... I guess every author sort of writes a lot of themselves into books, <laughs> right? So these are these are things that are important to me. Uh, I'm an adoptee. I didn't grow up uh, within my birth family or my community, uh, and only reunited with my birth mother as an adult. 
but still am, am at odds, you know, with that community uh, in a lot of ways. So that is something that personally interests me. I see it a lot in queer community too, where, for example, your uh, the family you're born into rejects you. So you have to go then and create your own found family uh, and what that looks like. And so I think it's really astute for you to notice, you know, this idea that the community that you think you should belong to or the family that you think you should belong to often uh, is not what you expect it to be. Uh, and often what they ask of you uh, might not be what you're willing to give and, and sort of what that looks like. And, you, and that plays out for the other point of view characters as well in the book. Shiala, who is a character who has been banished from her home and is now sort of uh, out sort of in the world on her own trying to make it, but mostly falling into a bottle. <laughs> and Akoa, who is a who is a young man born into privilege, he is uh, one of the Sky Maid. Uh, he is Carrion Crow, uh, and yet he still chafes against uh, the expectations of his family. It's interesting you mentioned both of them because, you know, when I think about both of them, there's there's something else also that comes to mind, which is, for me, another theme of the book is that there's a lot of myths and stories that are told, and there seems to be uncertainty about what's real and what isn't. So Serapio, to some people, is the fulfillment of a, of a myth. But when Okoa hears about his possible existence and hears the story, he doesn't believe it. He condemns the believers in it as fanatics, like that can't be true. So there's this conflict even within the culture, someone who you know, supposedly knows the culture and is a leader in it, doesn't fully embrace even some of the, the myths. And and Shiala, too, as you say, she's been exiled from her from her world, and she is um, a teak. I guess that's her ethnicity, is teak. And there's all these myths about her and the sailors. She's a captain of a ship, and the sailors are afraid of her. There's stories about her. They don't think she's human. They don't know. And then it turns out she's not even fully aware of all her capacities because something happens in the story and she discovers something about herself. It's fascinating that even the people themselves aren't fully aware of uh, the myths around them and what's true and what isn't. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's really good. Um, yeah, I, and I did that on purpose. You know, I, I want to, I, I never want things to be uh, clear cut, sort of like, you know, I think in epic fantasy, traditionally, we always have the good guy and the bad guy. It's, it's this sort of, you know, the, the epicness of it is good versus evil. Uh, and that didn't really interest me. What interests me is sort of what individuals do, uh, what their choices are uh, when they're caught up in, in sort of mismaking times. And how they they choose to either take on that mantle, you know, or or reject it. Uh, and and I wanted the outsider, I wanted Serapio uh, to be the believer. And whether what he believes is true or not, I, I hopefully I don't actually answer that for you. Uh, I think that it, it might become clearer as the series goes on. But at least for now, you should be sitting in a little pocket, or the reader I think should be sitting in a little pocket of what is real, you know, how much of this is true uh, and how much of it isn't. And, and if anything, Akoa is a bit more of the, he's the insider who is not a believer. 
Uh, and so because he's seen sort of the nitty gritty, he's seen the, the evolution of this prophecy, you know, he's seen the way that it plays out on the day to day, you know, so he doesn't have the luxury of just, you know, enjoying the myth for what it is. He understands the consequences of believing it for better or worse. Uh, and so I really wanted uh, that sort of perspective uh, brought to the floor as well. So, yeah, hopefully nobody is, uh, none of the characters are easy or exactly what one might expect. Hopefully they're a little bit challenging. Yeah, I would say that the good and the bad, it's not clear cut, especially when you have a story also that's about vengeance and, you know, a horrible crime that's committed but that happened in an earlier generation. And so you're like, well, so the people fighting it out now, is it morally okay to follow through and take vengeance on the next generation or not? Or, you know, the trauma gets handed down, so maybe the culpability gets handed down. It's uh, it's a lot to grapple with. Yeah, and I do try to raise that question, and I try to actually not answer it for anyone. You know, I was talking to... I think it was Stephen Graham Jones, uh, who is uh, uh, a Blackfoot writer uh, who wrote a uh, The Only Good Indians this year that came out. Uh, and it's a story of vengeance. Uh, and so my story is a story of vengeance as well. And we hadn't quite kind of put it together until we were on a panel. We were like, oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> uh, and one of the things we talked about is that sort of fine line between justice and vengeance. And, and what, what does it look like? And when do you cross over? When does it become sort of, you know, something immoral or something unethical? Um, and, and when is it justified? Uh, and how do you, how do you answer that? Uh, and I actually have a, a character in the book pose a question of, you know, well, my ancestors, you know, I didn't have anything to do with this, um, this genocide that happened. I don't know why they're mad at me. I didn't do anything. <laughs> and that is a question I have heard, you know, vocalized, uh, you know, or at least uh, maybe not vocalized, but on Twitter or on social media, uh, people have certainly raised that question uh, in regards to American history, um, whether it be reparations or whether it be land back or, you know, whatever, whatever the issues are. So I actually wanted to engage that question and not assume that we all agree on the answer uh, and let the characters sort of grapple with it. Yeah, <laughs> that's all true. It really ties into today more than the more we're talking, the more I realize that you there are reflections of of a lot of current issues, even though it is set ostensibly in an imagined pre-conquest, pre-European invasion of the Americas. But you've been able to really mine themes that are relevant today. Maybe they've always been relevant throughout human history, but that's very impressive. Well, you know, I think that what science fiction and fantasy does so wonderfully sometimes is allow you to sort of slip in the side door of these issues, you know, so so I think my books often function on two levels. There's a level that we've been sort of engaging where you see all these these themes and these, you know, um, the, the th things that are happening, the issues that I'm trying to engage. And then there's the fun I'm reading a fantasy adventure, you know, epic sort of world building, you know, enjoying sort of the escape of the book. But but hopefully maybe some of those things are trickling in too, or hopefully some of those issues are trickling too, but they don't have to be, you know, sort of right in your face. They're there if you want them, 
but you can also just enjoy an incredible adventure, uh, you know, a vengeful God. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the research you did. I mean, the story is timed around the convergence, which is a solar eclipse, and that's that's where the title of the book comes from, Black Sun. And I named the episode now in which we're talking Convergence Conjunction, because actually we're recording this still in December, and the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter is happening tonight. So I was like, oh, perfect, Convergence Conjunction. <laughs> so in Black Sun, there's a convergence. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the significance of the convergence to the story. I mean, it's just a cool event around which to, to set any book. But I wondered, are solar eclipses, are, were they significant in some indigenous cultures? And maybe that could be a doorway into you just talking generally about what research you did. I know that you're, you're really riffing on it. I mean, this is your fantasy, but you are, you do wish and you acknowledge in in your acknowledgments that it's rare to find a fantasy inspired by the indigenous cultures of the Americas. And that's what you wanted to do. Right. Yeah. So, right. The climax of, uh, of the book, uh, what we're all working towards uh, is this event called the Convergence, which is actually a solar eclipse on the solstice, on the winter solstice. So you have this sort of double whammy. Uh, and the idea is that the sun is at its weakest. Because not only is it eclipsed, but it's the solstice, it's the shortest day of the year. So like all of this uh, is going on. Which, which is today, by the way. That is, it is. Yes, absolutely. It is today. So if we were in year 325 of the sun in the meridian, stuff would be going down. Oh, wow. I'm, glad, <laughs> so. I'm kind of glad we're not there. I'm glad this is much safer, <laughs> even, though, even though 2020 is a crazy year, too. Been, yes, you know. absolutely. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, but anyway, so um, yeah, you know, the reason that I picked uh, when I was sort of doing some research and trying to figure out, you know, sort of what I wanted to center the book around, uh, one of the things that I love about Mesoamerican cultures, uh, because the book is really influenced by uh, North American indigenous cultures, like the Puebloans, the Central Puebloans, um, the Aztec and the Maya down through Central America. And there's even some Incan influences and some Mississippi mound builder influences. And then I brought in uh, some traditional Polynesian sailing methods so that the, the sailing would not feel European in its flavor. It would feel indigenous. And really, like you said, these were all just influences. So I did riff off them. So it's not historically accurate. Uh, I often mix cultures uh, to, be, to create something new. Uh, there's certainly elements of magic and uh, megafauna <laughs> and things like that uh, that did not, uh, as far as I'm aware, <laughs> exist uh, in real life. Uh, and then, you know, I sort of set it in the secondary world. So that it doesn't it doesn't match up uh, with anything specifically, but certainly the importance of the celestial calendar and and uh, sort of heavenly bodies is on point for many of the indigenous cultures of the Americas. I think probably the most famous is the are the Aztec and, and the Mayan, but also the Mississippi mound builders who built like Cahokia. Um, well, actually, such a popular all of them. I think had this in common that they built their cities, you know, along celestial uh, ley lines, whether they were lining them up with the rise of Venus um, or the um, eclipse 
uh, or the solstice or whatever it was, all these things were important. They built roads along uh, these lines. They tracked things like the the crab, the supernova of the Crab Nebula, uh, well before uh, Galileo had even proven to Europe that the world was round. You know, they were doing all these incredible things, particularly you know, having to do with the sky, because they believe, you know, the sky reflected the order, sort of the world, sort of bring that order down onto the earth, you know, you built your cities along these lines, you you worshiped your gods, you know, in conjunction with these things and, and all of that. So I wanted to bring that flavor to the story, the importance of that. So, so I'm really striving always through my work, but in this book, to, to capture some of a world view. Uh, so it's not just like, oh, we put some brown paint on some people and, you know, they sort of made them, you know, sort of surface similar you know, to these people. I wanted to capture sort of what that worldview was like. And that's also why I have, you know, variations uh, in gender fluidity and in disability and in things like that, because I felt like that was important to an indigenous worldview as well. I was wondering if there was something in particular that you learned that you hadn't known before, that you found particularly fascinating, that you wanted to share. Oh, well, you know, I actually learned a lot about crows. <laughs> That's usually actually what I bring up is um, crows play a big part in this book. I created a, a mythology a- around them and the idea uh, of this vengeful god, this vengeful crow god. And the concept of the bird eating the sun is certainly not unique. Uh, you've seen the, you see this in a number of different cultures, but the way that the rest of the mythology plays out was something that I wanted to create. So I did a lot of research on crows and, you know, things like the fact that they can hold a grudge. So it made it a very good vengeful god. You know, a family of crows, if a crow, uh, if you do something bad, they will remember your face and they will pass that down to their children and their children's children. And you know, to their sort of extended family and hold that grudge against you and recognize who you are pretty much for your life, or at least for their lives. Uh, you know, they have funerals. They hold crow funerals for other crows that have fallen. And uh, they're just fascinating creatures. They're very social and they, and they have all these sort of interesting uh, personalities uh, and quirks. And I tried to bring some of that to the story as well. Uh, not only in the in the creation of the crow mythology, but in the creation of of Serapio, the character who really embodies that that mythology. It is incredible and beautiful too to envision and imagine because you you refer to megafauna, and one of the megafauna are in fact there are conventional crows, and then there are you know dragon sized crows that <laughs> that people can fly. That really is wonderful and exciting. Yeah, and not just crows, but, and, you know, as the, as the series goes on, you'll see that uh, we have, um, in, in this book, in Black Sun, you do have the uh, oversized water striders, so you have giant bugs uh, as well. That's uh, right. Big enough to pull a barge, and you'll have uh, winged serpents and eagles that will play a bigger role in the future books. So does that mean everything has been mapped out, and, and how many books are planned? Well, right now... We are planning a trilogy. I know there will be at least three, and we'll sort of see where it goes from there. Uh, I have a lot of story to tell, but it might be that we sort of, you know, finish with these characters, 
and then see if there are any other stories we want to explore in this world. And is there more coming for the Sixth World series? We'll see. Uh, I think that that's kind of uh, up to my publisher. We'll sort of figure out what we want to do next. So I don't know, but hopefully we'll know soon. We'll know in the new year, probably. What's your advice to writers who are either trying to manage their time or trying to, because you seem to do it so well, or trying to juggle a lot of projects because you seem to have a lot going on. You've written a Star Wars book. I mean, you've, you've done a lot. And do you have also something in production somewhere, something going into television or streaming or movie? I've had a number of projects optioned. So I have projects with Netflix and Amazon Studios and Paramount. But we'll see. No, nothing's quite come to fruition yet. Uh, that is the nature of Hollywood. And I've been in a TV writer's room for an FX, uh, a new FX series for the past three months. Uh, and uh, that is not any of my original work. That is, that is working on, a, on someone else's idea. <laughs> but uh, I get to be in the writer's room, uh, bringing that to life. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun and very interesting uh, to work in TV, which is quite different than publishing. Uh, and then, of course, I'm writing the second novel uh, in the Between Earth and Sky series, the one after Black Sun, uh, which I can't give a title for yet. But I do know. <laughs> I just have a lot to share. But hopefully I will be able to say a lot more about that uh, in January or February. Tell me, what's the rationale behind the publishers thinking when they say, well, don't talk about the title. We want to do a big unveil. Is it to get more attention? How does that work? I'm just curious. I imagine, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably to, you know, it's so competitive and there's so many books out there and it's very hard to hold people's attention. And so I just imagine any sort of ump you can get, any sort of interest you can sort of consolidate and throw out something cool like the new cover. I'm sure we'll have the cover art by then and, you know, a title and a release date all at once, I think is hopefully, you know, gets people a little more excited or gets a little more eyeballs on your next project because, gosh, the, the public attention span is quite short. <laughs> it's hard to get people to, to focus on what you're doing. So that's why I actually appreciate you even having me on. Like, I love, you know, I love that opportunity to talk about my book and, you know, hopefully get people interested and, um, you know, maybe they'll check it out. Yeah, me too. I hope they do. And that people should, in fact, do that. And this is a perfect way to wrap up the show with a pitch to buy Black Sun and go back and buy Trail of Lightning and buy all Rebecca Roanhorse's books because they're all wonderful. So thank you so much for spending yeah. some time with me and with the listeners on this day of the conjunction and also being the first episode that we publish in 2021. So I think it's a great positive way to start the new year. Yay, I think so too. Thanks for having me, Rob. Sure, thank you. And uh, I've been spending this episode with Rebecca Roanhorse. She's the author of Black Sun, which came out from Gallery Saga Press in October. And thank you so much for joining us today. We know you've got lots of podcasts you could choose from, so we really appreciate you taking the time to listen. And if you like this episode, please consider leaving a review on, on whatever podcast platform you use. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. And I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. And I edit the show. And I'm grateful to the founder and editor of the New Books Network, Marshall Poe, and co-editor Leanne Wilson for running the New Books Network. And please enjoy 
this January and 2021. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.